You are listening to the new Fiction Talks podcast by the Center for Fiction. I'm Noreen Tomasi, Executive Director of the Center. Fiction Talks features new, exclusive interviews with award-winning novelists, as well as remastered recordings of literary giants who have appeared here at our space in New York City. Today, I'll be speaking with author Bonnie Nadzim, who won our first novel prize in 2011 for her extraordinary novel, Lamb. Her new book, Lions, is part ghost story, part coming-of-age story, part love song to the high plains of the American West, but most of all, a story about the way we tell ourselves stories and how these stories free or entrap us. Bonnie, before we begin talking about Lions, I'd love to have you read a short section from the beginning of the novel so our readers can get a sense of the language. Yeah, I'd be so happy to. So this is the very opening of the novel, starting on page one and ending on page two. If you've ever really loved anyone, you know there's a ghost in everything. Once you see it, you see it everywhere. It looks out at you from the stillness of a rail-backed chair, from the old 1952 Massey Harris pony tractor out front, its once shining red metal now a rust-splotched pink, Headlights broken off, no eyes. Picture high plains in late spring, green rows of winter wheat combed across the flat, wide open ground, the derelict sugar beet factory, its thousands of red bricks fenced in by chain link, clotted with Russian thistle. Farther down the two lane highway, the moon, rising like an egg over the hollow grain elevator, rusted at its seams. To the north and west, the sparsely populated town, golden rectangles of a few lit windows floating above the plain. They called it Lions, a name meant to stand in for disappointment with the wild invention and unreasonable hope by which it had been first imagined, then sought, and spuriously claimed. There were never any lions. In fact, there is nothing more to the place now than a hard rind of shimmering dirt and grass. The wind scours it constantly, scrubbing the sage and sweeping out all the deserted buildings and weathered homes, clearing out those that aren't already bare, flat as hell's basement and empty as the boundless sky above it. The horizon makes as clean and slight a curve as if lathed by a master craftsman. Nothing is hidden. And yet, it's said that in naming the place after a dream from which they refuse to awaken, The people of Lyons put a curse upon themselves as much as the summer a man and his dog came walking into town along the bar ditch from God knew where, his dark clothes blowing like robes in the wind. Thanks so much, Bonnie. That's beautiful. You know, we hear so much lately about novels of place. And this novel, whose title is taken from the place in the novel, Lions, a small town on the high plains of Colorado, is very much about place, but it's also about much more than that. Um, It's the story of these two people, how tied they are to that place, how they can escape, whether they can carry one another along. But I'd like you first to talk a little bit about your notion of this particular place, why you chose to write about this town and the exodus of people from it 
I've spent a lot of time out West. I'm, I'm not from the West. I'm from Cleveland. So the West made a really big impression on me when I started to explore it as a young adult. And it's really easy, I think, to be impressed by the mountains. You know, when you, when you go stand in front of, a, you know, a famous Rocky Mountain peak or you're climbing the peaks, your eye knows exactly where to go. It rests right on, you know, that uppermost point. But when you're on the plains, it's very disorienting. You can see forever in every direction. It's very dusty. You can drive for an hour and it feels like you haven't even moved. And all, all, like all of these external um, geographical notes that sort of refer to you and, and let you know where you are in space, relatively speaking, don't exist. And it's easy to feel yourself drop away and, and to feel, you know, what is it inside of this skull that is seeing out into what is it out there? Um, and so I think that the plains are infinitely more sublime than the mountains or even the sea. I've been out at sea and it felt like I was trapped in a blue box. <laughs> nothing. It's just nothing but water in every direction, no matter where you go. Um, I felt really circumscribed. And so the plains, you feel the movement. You can see the grass. And, and yet, it's like you're on a, like a treadmill or something. It's who are you? What are you? Where are you? And so I wanted to explore that feeling a little bit. And it felt important for it to be in that landscape. Um, and if it's mythic, I think it's because there's so much promise in an emptiness like that. But it's fundamentally empty. It's interesting because all of the characters, not just the main characters, seem both more present, more visible, and less present, part of something broader, wider, deeper than I, as a reader, am familiar with. I wonder if you can speak to that and how your own experience uh, influence the way you built these characters, your own experience of the landscape. Yeah, I'm glad that that came across, that that was palpable in some kind of way. There's a place in the book where um, one of the protagonists, Lee, the young woman, her mother says to her in a, a bit of a scolding but loving way, you act as if everything happening to you is happening in Lee Ransom's precious life. And Lee doesn't understand this at all. She says, if it's not my life, whose is it? But the fact is, this world, New York City, this room that we're sitting here in, it was all here before I arrived, and it will be here after I'm gone, whatever it is that I mean by I. And so um, I'm glad to hear that there was a sense of something like a bigger container, you know, something larger that holds each of these characters, that it's not just about the life of these particular people, but about maybe life with more of a capital L. Um, at the same time, there's sort of a dark side to that because, or not a dark side to the same notion, but a dark side to the stories that they allow to contain and carry them. And I think Lee in particular is sort of blindly and sadly a poor white woman, you know, what what is on the horizon for you. Certainly there's nothing in the present for you. And so um, she allows herself to be defined by that container too, and um, to her detriment. I think. And yet everyone around her is questioning that view of the world and questioning whether even there is any point 
to her, at least in the way I read it, to her trying to define who she is going to be and where she is going to be, rather than just simply being in the landscape and accepting what is almost faded for her. Yeah, that's right. And um, I have a hard time having empathy for that, but I've been sort of corrected by readers, which I really appreciate, who have said, look, she's just, she's doing the best she can. And what else is she supposed to do? These are the stories that she's been defined by, that you're supposed to move up and move on and make more of yourself. If I personally think that the idea of self-improvement is a delusion and a lie, she doesn't, and that's not her fault. And um, she does, in the end, come to see, I think, the error of her ways. But it is. The the book really is a narrative against the narrative we are being fed constantly. Yeah. Um, this is your only life. You must improve yourself. You must live fully, question everything in that marriage, in that place of living, and that way of being, move to the next thing, the next thing, right. um, make yourself better, better, better. And the book really stands in opposition to that in many ways. Yeah, I think it does. And I think not all of the readers I've heard back from see it that way. So I'm sort of glad that you do, although it shouldn't matter to me, you know, as the writer. Well, that's what's so interesting about the character of Gordon and his relationship to his father, John. John is an extraordinary character in literature, I think, because he he goes against the tide he doesn't define himself in any of the socially acceptable ways, even down to the detail of not defining himself by how successful he is as a family man, how well he provides for his family. He even rejects that. He has a kind of love and pride in his work as a welder and a kind of attention to the present. And he raises Gordon in a very particular particular way. Can you talk a little bit about that father-son dynamic and how Gordon evolves to be the kind of man he becomes? Sure. Yeah, John Walker, I think, um, lives according to a notion, if he lives according to any notions, that the self is a verb, really, not a noun. And so if he's not a noun that adjectives can affix themselves to, then he's not worried about what people call him or, you know, how he might be described either in the present or in the future after he's gone. For him, what matters is the ceremony of attention in the present. And sometimes that means something sort of highfalutin, like paying really great attention to the weld that he's working on and making it a beautiful, perfect weld. Because after all, as he tells his son, people's lives depend upon good welds. These aren't, he's not making jewelry. He's making, you know, heavy equipment and people could be killed if he isn't welding correctly. At the same time, when he lets all of that go, at the end of the day, he has two shots of whiskey and sits back with his uh, romance novels, essentially. They're Western, um, like Pulp Fiction. And so whether he's doing hard work or, or, you know, letting go and enjoying himself, he's just fully immersed and embodying that. And Gordon, his son, has been watching this for a long time. And as a teenage boy, is a little bit conflicted with it until suddenly his father dies you know, too, too soon and too suddenly. And as Gordon remembers his father telling him about his grandfather's death, grief wakes you up. And Gordon is really shaken to the core by this loss and what it means. 
that the only two things we know are that you're going to die and you don't know how or when it's going to happen. And this shifts all the ambition and all of the glittering future that he's seeking into its proper proportion, just as happened to his own father when his father's father died. And it's a, it's a kind of loss that is a blessing, but that Lee doesn't allow herself to experience. She grieves in a different way, um, a way of denial. Um, so Gordon is sort of broken open by his father's death. I was taken by the fact that his father reads those pulp westerns because when I first came to the center, we had an extensive collection of westerns. Oh, really? And I remember the covers of them so vividly, uh, which almost all featured this lonely American hero on horseback. They're outrageous. (laughs) They really are. With cacti in the background Uh or the setting sun and the faraway look in the man's eye, you know. And the thing you immediately see when you see them laid out in front of you like that with all the covers is how much they are reinforcing an idea of what a man is what an American man is, and what kind of man conquered and thrived in the American West. And so I found it very significant that John Walker reads these books, because he's the un-Western hero. That's right, he is. He's the opposite of all those guys. He really is, and yet he has his two glasses of whiskey, and he turns to that, and I just found it an interesting choice. And why that? Why wasn't he sitting there reading Dickens? Right, yeah, it's a good question. And I wasn't really conscious of what the reason was until a couple people had asked me this and I was forced to think about it. Um, And I think it's, for, for John Walker, reading those stories is fun. It's like turning on the TV. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, he wants to be entertained but he's able to see them as a certain kind of story that don't inform his life. Whereas Lee, Ransom, and many of the other people in the town of Lyons absorb these stories uh, without any awareness and then unconsciously enact them. I think, personally, I think the self is fundamentally mimetic, that the self is a verb, you know, as I said. And um, if that's the case, we need to be really conscious of and aware of the stories that we're repeating to ourselves. And John is able to just sort of, oh, this is fun. You know, this is a story. And I'm not going to try to embody this or incarnate it and make myself a hero of the plains. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a welder. That's the end of my story. But it's interesting. There is a kind of classic storytelling going on in a couple of ways in the novel that you undermine. So one, of course, is the classic story, A Stranger Comes to Town. Mm-hmm, right. Stranger Comes to Town influences the action. That story is resolved. The stranger is known or changed, or the town is known or changed, which in this case, the town is changed in some way by that interaction. But you inject into that story so much ambiguity and mystery. And then the second story is the classic mystery story. Um, Someone goes to an unknown destination, and there's a mystery about that. Um, In this case, John Walker travels 
we think, north um, several times a year and is gone for a few days and mysteriously returns later on in the novel. After his father's death, Gordon disappears in the same manner. And one would expect that this would be resolved well, it could be resolved in many ways in many different books. Um, unlike this book, where there's a mistress up north. There's an actual descendant of someone who was injured generations before theirs, and there's resolution. But you create these two kind of classic structures for the story. And also there's a story of, of, there's a, story of a stranger coming to a place, but then there's also the st- story of leaving a place. And so it's interesting that you weave all of those together in the way that you do. And you don't, at least it seemed to me, you don't seek resolution in a traditional way. Yeah, maybe not in a traditional way. There's resolution. But I feel there's definitely resolution there. I mean, all of the story that we hear about um, both John and Gordon going north is all presented to us in rumor and in close third-person Lee's point of view. So it never comes from the omniscient narrator who's otherwise telling us the facts of the matter. So that's just another level of a story embedded within the story. And um, essentially, I think that what Lee does, and I don't know if if you want or don't want spoilers on the podcast. Sure. Um, you can decide, you know, huh? what to do. Um, She is telling herself the story of a man who has been left behind for dead by companions who are just running like hell for leather west for a better life. And that's what she ends up incarnating. She leaves the love of her life behind for dead, running like hell for leather toward a better life further west. And I wonder if she might have created a different life if she had been telling herself a different story or if she had at least been aware of that story as a story rather than, you know, as part of what it meant to be American. It's interesting because I was reading an essay by Italo Calvino, also a master of um, creating stories that are not resolved in a traditional way, (laughs) Obviously, but one of the things that he was saying in this called lightness um, in six me- memos for the next millennium was that we have a couple moments in our life. If we're lucky, we have three or four where we engage in something or we meet someone that is central to what he would call our soul, who we are. And when I read that, It reminded me very much of Lee's dilemma. Um, She meets and knows her whole life, for the most part, her entire life until she goes away to college, Gordon, who is that person, who is that moment. And she chooses um, to step away from that moment. Calvino, in the essay, is urging people not to step away from that moment, to step into it no matter how perilous. I think where I would differ from Calvino is that I think every moment in every person is an opportunity to drop in in that way. And um, for Gordon, uh, he's, he is in part because he's been trained to attention in his craft by welding, is open to that. He's open to those moments. He's open to being crushed by them. They're not, 
it's not all going to be like beautiful. You know, you see your the love that was meant to be across a crowded room, and it's like I'm going to dive into. The, no, maybe it's the moment where someone you care about dies. Maybe it's something as crushing as that, or maybe it's a moment when you step in a pile of dog shit, you know, and it really stinks, and you can't get it out of the waffle of your running shoe. Um, because he's been trained to such attention and detail, Gordon is ready for that, whatever form it comes in. And that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him. When we see him in college having to reject this life that he knew he was going to or thought he was going to take on and embody, he's pretty low. And he knows when he's leaving Lee that he's leaving something really important and beautiful. And not only that, he has to give up the shop, the very place that he learned this attention to detail and ceremony because there's someone else who needs it more than him. So it's not like, uh, you know, one of the questions I was thinking about when I was working on this is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And what does it mean that God is close to the crushed in spirit? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think maybe Gordon is approximating some understanding of what the answer to that is. It's very much a novel about class as well as place. Were both of those equally weighted for you, the idea of class and the idea of place, and somehow intertwined? Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that, especially a, in the West? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And the West in particular was a place of promise for people who were otherwise destitute and had no option of anything like upward mobility until suddenly there was something like the Homestead Act, which was um, heavily, heavily marketed to people who were looking to emigrate from Europe and from other countries. And it was basically, you know, we'll give you hundreds of acres out here if you just settle it and start growing things. And the propaganda, the visual propaganda that went along with these, I mean, they were actually like flyers that were sent out overseas. Um, there was one, and um, this I, I learned from Jonathan Rabin's Badland, detailed a plow cutting into the earth in what was supposed to be Montana with gold coins like flying up out of the soil. And In fact, it's all high desert. and. It can't be cultivated. I mean, people are still trying. It's amazing. When I lived in Colorado, that like 24-hour irrigation and, you know, the issues of water out there. And so it was a promise. It was a way for people who were, who were broke and poor to put the last of what they had into this great shining promise of the American West. And for many people, it really didn't work out. And you can look at other beautiful, beautiful works of fiction for that, like... I'm thinking of um, my Antonia and Antonia's poor father and mother and how they, they put everything they had into this hope and end up living in a hole in the ground. And he is either murdered or kills himself in the end, and they, they really lose everything. I was thinking of my Antonia a little bit when I was reading this. I also was thinking about the work of Marilyn Robinson because I think that the way that you are speaking about America in your novels, not only this one, but the last one, and taking on the, the myth of America <laughs> and is a bit reminiscent of her work as well, the ambition of the novels 
is is very much like that. I thought Lions was one of the most ambitious novels I've read in a long time because it's telling a very personal story. It's telling a, a story of place, but it's also telling a story of America in a very vivid way for me that resonated, especially now. Um, it seems to be about so much that we've lost as a country and so much we fooled ourselves. Yeah, I think that that fooled ourselves about is really important. Um, and I was conscious when I was working on this of the idea of my family are it's are a family of immigrants from Eastern Europe, and they couldn't have been totally wrong to have thought that there was a better life in America. And I'm glad that they came. But this is not an immigrant novel. This is about thinking that the country offered something that it never could live up to. You can't live up to this idea of the American dream. It's just, um, it's preposterous and it's increasingly immoral and unethical, I think. And yet, you know, on an individual level, each one of us is torn between what we feel or sense to be right and our desires and our fears and what we want for our own little tribes. It was always a myth, but it's really broken now. Enough is enough. It's why it's so difficult sometimes to listen on either side of the political line now, these stories that we keep telling ourselves about American exceptionalism and what a great, great country this is and how anyone can come from nothing and be everything, and you feel like that doesn't resonate very much if you look around. It's true, less and less, less and less. I mean, in my immediate family alone, the student loans we're paying off is amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make any other choices. And I'm so grateful for the resources that have been poured into me and I happily pay them off. But we're just one tiny family with like tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And then like, how do we get health insurance? You know, okay, well, it's just, it's trickier than that story of the city on the hill would have you believe um, for one thing. And the other really, really important thing is that that hill wasn't empty, you know, when Europeans came over here to build the city upon it. Thousands and tens of thousands of people had to be murdered and are, are continually oppressed and dehumanized and demeaned in order to maintain the myth. And I mean, come on. <laughs> it's... it's is it not in our faces enough? Yeah. It, it's amazing that the very group of people that were oppressed by the founders of this country are the ones who I think personally hold the ability to make this country great, so to speak. You talked about reading Badlands. I wonder about other influences on your writing and on this book in particular and your sense of of where we are right now in terms of the kind of novels that people are writing and that are getting attention and where you see yourself in that landscape? Um, Well, in terms of writing, you know, something that's a little bit more concise and distilled, at least I hope that that's an appropriate word for lamb and for lions, I can think of two influences, really powerful ones, and neither one of them is really um, an author or, a a, you know, a collection of work. One is... um, just my <laughs> my growing up, my lifestyle was such that I had an older sister who was very, very extroverted and also was raised in a Catholic um, grammar school. And so 
nothing I ever had to say was very interesting or worthwhile. And so if I had something to say, I better get it out quick and I better make it interesting or nobody was going to hear it or care. And I love my big sister, you know, I'd like if she's an influence in the most positive way in this regard. And I learned to, you know, really quickly say as much. I think when I, my parents say when I first started speaking, it was in full sentences. I didn't talk. I didn't talk. I didn't talk. Because who needed to? My sister talked for me. You know, she, and then suddenly it was like, I need to go outside now. And, you know, OK. <laughs> so that's a huge influence. And I don't think that that should be overlooked. The, the people that were around when we learn language and we're hearing stories for the first time. And the other was a professor of philosophy I had at University of Southern California when I was working on Lamb. George Wilson is his name, and I was taking a course on aesthetics with him. And I was the only non-philosopher in the course. And he, so he was, of course, really curious about, you know, fiction and what is this fiction program that you're in and what is it that you're working on? And he said in the kindest but most direct way, are you writing like a really huge book or is it elegant? <laughs> and I, was, I wasn't sure yet, but as soon as he said that, I knew the answer was you chose elegance. elegance. <laughs> like everything I've ever loved in the arts, visual or musical or, um, you know, uh, verbally representational has always been elegance. And I think that's so much harder. And I thought, well, I'm going to try for that. Why wouldn't I try for that? Nobody, it was consistent with growing up and with um, not just my big sister, you know, always having the word, but with men having the word and, you know, who cares what I have to say? What It doesn't matter what I have to say, so I better really distill it and get it out quickly. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, Lamb, Lamb did critically, it did pretty well. It didn't sell very much, but um, it won the Flaherty Dunn-In, which was an amazing moment and, and thing to be part of and was long listed for um, what's now the Bailey's Prize and was turned into a film and and so, you know, I thought that a second novel, though it was really hard to write a sophomore novel, as you can imagine, would get a little attention, but there wasn't a single newspaper review for it. And I'm not really sure what to make of that. Um, on one hand, you know, on bad days, I think, well, it's a, it's a bad book. That's just, you know, it's the world's judgment. And then sometimes I think, ah, it's the chatter of the world. You know, you can't... If you look at the nature of the chatter of the world, you can't um, determine anything that is of merit or value based on such chatter. It's a celebrity culture, and um, the book has to stand alone. And in a way, there's a lot of freedom that comes in having this, this craft that means so much to me totally disengaged from a place of capital. And my partner at home always jokes, you know, what would John Walker say? He would just open the blank page and start the next book. And, and so have you done that? Yeah, yeah, of course I have. Of course. <laughs> I can't not do it. I think that because we have the first novel prize, I read so many first novels Lamb and many, many others. I since can't then. imagine. <laughs> and then I am always curious about the second novel from those people, especially from people who have been shortlisted for our first novel prize or people who have 
won it, and I look forward to their second book with great anticipation. And so on a personal note, I just want to say this fulfilled all my expectations. Oh, thank you. That's and nice I think to hear. Lamb was a wonderful book. I think you've written an even better book with Lions. Thank and you. I'm very much looking forward to the even better third book. And I say that not to challenge you at all, <laughs> because I fully expect it, because I see the trajectory of your writing, and it's so exciting for thank me. You. Thank you. It means a lot to hear from you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you very much, Bonnie, for doing Thanks, this. Thanks, Noreen.